HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jake Dell, the owner of Katz's Delicatessen, the iconic Jewish deli located on the Lower East Side. Katz's opened in 1888. It was purchased by the Dell family in 1988 at its 100-year anniversary. Jake officially joined the business uh, after, you know, obviously having spent many years probably running around the tables in 2009. He's now in charge of all major operations. He's expanded the shipping to include a national reach, which we'll talk about, and soon they will be opening Katz's uh, second location, first outside of Manhattan, in the soon-to-be-opened DeKalb Market, which is sort of by the Barclays Center. He's got a BA from Tufts and an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business, and he was selected as a Forbes 30 Under 30. Today we're going to be talking about gentrification of New York City, pastrami, how a restaurant can remain relevant and busy after 129 years in business, and the rules, both spoken and unspoken, of deli culture. Jake, welcome to The Line. Thanks for having me on. Okay, full disclosure, let's get started. I grew up wearing a red Katz's Send a Salami to Your Boy in the Army t-shirt that I got on vacation. I imagine tons of people uh, can tell you that because it's one of the major tourist destinations in New York City. It's a cultural landmark. Let's start by talking about deli tradition. What makes a deli great and allows Katz's to stay in business for 129 years? Uh, well, first I'll say I have that exact same shirt. I have about 85 different Katz's shirts. So um, I think uh, there's a lot of things that, that make deli deli. Um, it's an old tradition, right? It's something that you saw a lot of in the late 1800s. Um, it's an old tradition uh, brought over from Eastern Europe and brought here. Um, unfortunately, over the years, a lot of them have disappeared. And it's 
it's you know it's sad to see it, it, it'd be sad to, it's same thing if all of a sudden every pizza place in new york disappeared or every bagel shop disappeared it'd be a travesty so what we do is we try and preserve that tradition that food tradition for new yorkers and uh, it's something that now tourists have kind of been drawn to for for that same reason because they recognize hey this is a very old new york tradition it's something that when i look around i see that the classic New Yorkers, I see the sanitation guys and the Wall Street guys all chowing down on pastrami, uh, and they're sitting side by side. And and so I want to go there, and I want to experience that, and I want to learn about this food culture. It's a rare thing to find in any major city, but especially in New York City, a place, not just restaurants, that's sort of heralded as a cultural institution that people visit, that also locals visit. You know, most people that live in New York they're not going to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty, right? <laughs> they're not they're not doing the things that tourists do. But like you said, people are side by side at Katz's. Uh, I'm curious to know, uh, how did your family get involved? Did you used to go to Katz's as a family? And then one day you were presented with the opportunity to purchase it. Um, and uh who was first involved before you were old enough to take over? Uh, like, were your parent when it got purchased? Were your parents the people that ran it day to day? Right. So um, the Katz family had been involved for many years. It technically actually was the Iceland family first, and it was called Iceland Deli, and then it was called Iceland and Katz, and then Katz Deli, um, or Katz is is how I say it. But you know, a lot of people struggle with that apostrophe. Yes. Yeah. Like, tr- oh my god, what do I do? So tricky. The Z um, and the S. Yeah. Uh, so my grandfather became a partner uh, with the Katz, original Katz family, with the second generation. He uh, was kind of this self-made guy who grew up on the Lower East Side, ended up uh, running and owning a bar, and then used that to, to become partners at Katz's. Uh, and, and it's a little misleading because what it is now is not what it used to be. A, a, you know, old world restaurants transfer of ownership was not like hey listen here's some money it was you know i want to buy this restaurant from you it was like here you want to deal with these freaking bills it's all yours it's your headache it's no longer my headache good luck um it wasn't like a glamorous glorious thing so um my grandfather just grew up in the neighborhood and he loved the place and he didn't want to see it go uh and my father and my uncle joined uh and uh and my mother my aunt helped out when they could they were both teachers but you know, it's a family business, and it's uh, it was times were really really rough in the late eighties, early nineties, and and so it was all hands on deck. Yeah, so in the late eighties, I imagine that uh, the Lower East Side. I mean, I know it didn't resemble rough. anything what it resembled today. Right. What was the appeal uh, for your? For your father and your mother to get involved, was it more like they just had to because it was the family thing, or do they have? Did they have deli in the blood? <laughs> a combination of the two. Uh, my father was a manager at a different deli um, called Wolf's Deli, which was very popular back at the time to- uh, in Midtown Deli. Um, did a lot of catering jobs and things like that. So he was kind of already in that deli mode, if you want to call it that. Um, my mother was teaching around the corner. Uh, at Seward Park High School, which is actually where my mother and father met. Uh, my, my father grew up on the Lower East Side there, too. So 
Um, so they met at the high school that she then went on to teach at, basically? Uh, or in the lower no, no, no. no my, sorry, uh, it's the other way around. My father went to that high school and then later gotcha. be- taught for a couple of years at that same high school cool. where my mother then was teaching, and that's how they met. So your family is deeply ingrained in the Lower East Side. I, very much so. My Did, mother is a Brooklyn girl, and my my. Father's a Lower East Side guy, and did you grow up in the city, or did, did. you? Okay, yeah, yeah, where did yeah. you? Where, where were you living with your family? Uh, we were what's now called Kips Bay, and now pretty cool, I guess, and trendy, and um, you know, filled with the worst. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, um, uh, but no, we actually uh, grew up right by the uh, NYU Hospital. Okay, so and so. What are some of your early memories of being a young kid and going and running around that cavernous space? It was exactly that. It's huge as an adult, right? It's huge when it's filled with people. Imagine when you're five and six. What's it like when you've got kind of free reign to run around and you're like the little cute mascot of Cat's (laughs) Deli that everyone gets to mess around with? So it was a combination of the two. I I definitely ran around and, and had a great time. But at that time, our customer base was... A lot heavier on the um, like old Jewish men and like old Russians and old like just old guys and and when you're a little kid those guys are scary as hell yeah. and I did not run behind the counter. My father would also scare scare the crap out of me. He would say, "Listen, you know those knives back there? Like we've people have chopped their entire hand off. So be careful. Don't run back there." And as a six-year-old, you're like, yeah. oh, my God, I don't want to lose my hand. Of course. So, there's those big, scary vats of boiling oh my, meat water. and Exactly. Oh, no, the tanks are the size of this room that we're sitting in right yeah. now. And, and the whole, you know, a couple thousand pounds of meat. And there's this. And there's smokers. And, there, you know, and so it's terrifying. But it's also the place I grew up in. And, and the truth is, when I was growing up, I to me, it was just the store. You know what I mean? It was just the place my father went to every day, and it was the place that I got to go to, you know, sometimes after school and sometimes on weekends. And when I got old enough, I got to hand out tickets, which was amazing, and I got to do some of the dirty jobs, which I enjoyed, and and I, I just was there all the time, and I love it. Do you remember a moment from your teen years or from your childhood when you thought to yourself, oh, this isn't just any old restaurant was there someone that visited was there a turning point in the 90s when you were that you had a moment where you thought oh katz's is a little bit bigger than my mom and my dad and my grandpa so it actually didn't happen to me until college but that's also because like i'm a bit of an idiot so uh and (laughs) just did not pick up on these things uh um, you know, we we had President Clinton in the store, and we had all these these very well known and famous actors and and celebrities and musicians. And to me, I was like, well, whatever. That's like New York. They're just people. That's New York. <laughs> like every there's famous people everywhere. It's New York. Um, and then when I got to college, and um, similar to what what you were saying, there's a guy wearing a Katz's shirt in the cafeteria. And I go over to him and I was like, "Oh, cool! You're from New York. You know where where are you where are you from?" He's like, no, "No, I'm I'm from Louisville, Kentucky." I'm like, "What? How the how the hell do you know? What? That's my family's what?" And I, and that kind of that's when it kind of dawned on me. It it uh it became much larger in a worldwide scope at that point, right? Exactly. So you're in college and you're. You've kind of moved away slightly from the business, right? You were pursuing a medical professional career, and then you kind of got drawn back in, right? So around... The lure of the deli. Around (laughs) 2009, you take over. 
and you return to New York. I'm curious about, you know, obviously you'd spent years and years in the family restaurant, but that is a different animal than being sort of the managing partner or the president. But so what level of preparedness did you feel when you took over in 2009? And I'm curious, you know, first off, uh, what was the first thing to blindside you? Because it's a huge operation. And then after that, if you can talk about like, how did you earn the respect of the staff? Because you've got some guys that are probably double, triple your age Uh at that point. Oh, yeah. And now you're not like, hey, little Jake, what's going on? You're home from college. You're their boss. Um, So I'm curious about that whole transition process. How did that uh, how did that come to be? Yeah, wow that that question alone could be this (laughs) entire show. Um, It uh, was certainly challenging. And as far as my preparedness, uh, zero, there's nothing that can prepare you. All the school in the world, all the things that you think, you know, go right out the window. The second the first angry customer comes up to you yelling that they're pastrami was not perfect and and that's it you know what i mean and that's any service related job you you realize that people can be very demanding of your time your effort your energy and and you just have to roll with the punches um so you you that's on the job training and and within the first six months i learned more than i did in my entire life uh i, I do think it was wonderful that my father in retrospect my father kind of helped train me a little bit all along he would come home and ask the family questions you know hey this customer did this today what would you have done Mm -hmm. and then we would talk about it Mm -hmm. and as kind of like just casual dinner conversation Uh, and so that actually kind of helped me once those real situations happened um as far as the staff goes uh that took a while uh, I think I'm finally, finally at a point where I think I have <laughs> some some semblance of respect. Uh, it's very, very challenging to walk into a situation and tell someone to do something when they remember you in diapers. You know, it, it's like, hey, I remember that time that you had an accident and crapped your pants or, or something. You know, what I mean? <laughs> like, it's okay, cool, but I still need you to do that. Yeah, you don't have much leverage over them no, at I that point. I yeah. really didn't. Um, so it was just a matter of being there um, and putting in the hours and showing that I was willing to come in on overnights and willing to come in and do the dirty jobs and come in and uh, handle those customers that no one else wanted to handle and appease them. And, and I think just by seeing that I was committed to the place and not just, you know, that, you know, the boss's son or, or, um, or boss's nephew or boss's grandson or whatever it may be. I think that by hopefully, I, I mean, I guess you have to ask my staff rather than, than asking me, but I think we're, we're, you know, at a point where they hopefully respect me and I, cause I respect them and, and it's this kind of, uh, it's just a growing relationship in it. So let's spend a little time and give them sort of the, the respect that they deserve. Let's talk about the staff for a little bit. First off, how many people work at Katz's? So I have some of the best staff in the world. I have 140 uh, people right now. Huge restaurant yeah. staff. So I want to know... Um, I want to I wanna know about the slicing process. But before we get to the slicing process, I want to know about 
how do you get trained at Katz's to reach that level? Because that's sort of the that's the pinnacle, right? Yes. Once you're a cutter, you've made you've it. made it. So, right. uh, can you sort of summarize how someone who joins Katz's ends up being those amazing guys yep. that are cutting? And Years how of they... abuse. <laughs> um, uh, you you start. On an overnight shift, uh, and you start on the floor, and you start cleaning the bathrooms, and you start just being in the restaurant, and um, you know, then when you've demonstrated that and and a, and a willingness to be there and a hard and, and hardworking, it's something you can't teach. You can't teach, um, you know, an innate pride in your work. You can teach everything else. So then, you know, we, we put you on the soda station and sodas and fries. Uh, it's a pretty easy first step to, to dealing with customers. Uh, and then we put you over on the grill where you learn the hot dogs, you learn the knishes, you learn how to take care of food the right way, uh, how to be clean while you work, how to take care of customers. Um, and then kind of on your off hours, you... You know, uh, we give you, uh, you know, an hour or two to start slicing some bread, some start slicing pickles just to practice, you know, your hand-eye coordination, I guess, your, your skills with the knife. Um, you know, if you picture you, a lot of people that are righties, they'll use their left hand to hold something while they cut it, right? Let's say you're cutting a cucumber, for example, and you kind of use your finger to help guide the, type of the top of the knife. Well, in this case, when you're cutting meat, you don't have that luxury. You're not using that left hand. You're using another utensil. So that's a skill you have to learn. And it's just years of practice. That's it. Um, the cutters are so talented. They're artists. I mean, it's years and years of practice. I don't make a great-looking sandwich. I, I, I'm the first to admit it. I mean, when we do these photo shoots or things like that, I say, listen, I'll do it. I don't think it's a good idea. I, I mean, I'm not there behind the line every single day, every single shift, practicing, practicing, and, and taking care of the meat and trimming the meat. And these guys are artists at what they do. I mean, it's not a skill that comes overnight. Mm -hmm. It's a, something that you hone over the years. And, uh, and my God, these guys are just yeah, the, the most talented. The speed is tremendous. So yeah. I know that you're going through about 30,000 pounds of That's meat correct. a day. No, no, a week. A week. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Still a ton. I mean, uh, so how many sandwiches does a cutter make during like a busy lunch rush? Hundreds. Hundreds uh, of yeah. sandwiches. Yeah. Um, they'll, my fastest guy can do, let's say, 70, 80 sandwiches in an hour um, over a sandwich a minute. I, I mean, and, and is there competition between them? Like, who's the fastest? Do they know? They or do know. They Everyone all knows who the fastest Everybody is. Everybody knows. Everyone knows. Okay. You know, we, we, uh, with, you know, there's a little sliding scale of, of that. Is there a hierarchy amongst the staff in terms of like the guys that have been there for you guys? You oh, got guys that, are, that have been there, what, 20, yeah. 30 years? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, seniority happens and, and there's always going to be office politics, if you want to call it that. You know, there's always going to be that, um, you know, well, I've been here longer and I know what I'm doing, so screw mm -hmm. you. And there's always those kind of uh, interactions, which I, I happen to love. I, I find those fun. <laughs> I do want to ask you a little bit about politics, which is you've got 140 people that work for you. Uh, many of them not from this country. They're not uh, people that have maybe been in this country for long. And then you have people that have been in this country for dozens and dozens of years. Um, have you 
had an opportunity to have any conversations either with the group or offline about people that are uh, worried in any way about the current political climate? I think, uh, uh, yes. Short answer is yes. Um, I think overall, though, we're a family, and I think people know that we're going to look out for each other and we're going to take care of each other. Um, And, you know, these guys have been with me for a very long time, my whole family for a very Mm -hmm. long time. Um, And and so we're going to look out for each other, you know, and and, uh, any sort of politics that happen behind the scene, we don't let it carry over to the restaurant itself or to the service itself. Um, it's the two, my, my only things that I, I don't allow conversation behind the line of are, uh, politics and religion. That's it. Just, that's it. Keep that shit outside. <laughs> a- any, anything else you let them kind of jaw back and forth with yeah, customers a little exactly. bit. You want to give them a little bit of that New York exactly. experience give or whatever. Them, give them an edge, but no, you know, don't, don't go so far that you, you offend a customer. But. Sure. And so when someone's coming into the restaurant, I think that most people that are sort of quote unquote in the know, they know to order a sandwich fatty, right? They know that they should be getting that good awesome or juicy that's the oh, the, the secret word the there. secret word is juicy okay juicy. uh i'm curious in your opinion and also in the opinion of the staff what's the most underrated item at katz's i mean everyone's coming for the the pastrami and the corned beef right. that's so, what's bringing them in but what do you feel is the thing that's now never had its sort of day in the sun i have a shine? turkey a lot of the days um, okay i think we have some of the best turkey that you're gonna find it's a thanksgiving turkey essentially it's an all-white meat cooked in a bag of its own juices so it's it's just it's hot it's tender it's moist it falls apart and so for those people that don't eat a ton of red meat it's such a game changer i mean it's it's wonderful i objectively love it like and not just saying that because it's my baby but um i mean it's also the matzo ball soup i love um and and the real winner are the latkes hmm. i do some of the best latkes um Sounds really cocky, actually. I should pull. I should tone that back a little bit. But they're really, really good. It's okay. Your restaurant's been open for 129 years. I think you're allowed a you're allowed <laughs> a little bit of leeway and and how co- cocky you want to be. Most people are like, I hope I make it two years or four years. It's a hard industry, especially in New York. It's very, very difficult. Uh, in terms of you know, you just mentioned lakas, matzo balls. You went, you know, you have obviously it's a Jewish deli, but you have a couple things on the menu that aren't. A traditional Jewish deli item, like a grilled cheese. Uh, well, you, and you've got a cheesesteak, right? <laughs> a cheesesteak. Right. So, so I'm curious, uh, how much uh, have you had to? Has your family had to kind of um, cater to things that people ask for? That you, as a deli guy, says I didn't really want to put on the menu, but people were coming in and asking for it. I own a business. It's a business decision right. can you speak to that of a little course. bit how does that yeah. work you know like what? the biggest travesty in the world is the, is pastrami and mayo on, I, I mean that's to like you that's the biggest offensive tra- to me okay. but i'm still gonna give you the mayo i just like i'm not gonna put it on the sandwich for you like you do that I, i'm gonna turn around do it on the sandwich. <laughs> no. so um yes there's certainly um every you know couple years we have to kind of tweak something add something the reuben for example is not a traditional deli sandwich i I can't say this enough and and like that arby's commercial it's like classic reuben sandwich you know like no but you don't understand the tradition of deli but that's again that'll be a rant for a different day um so 
Right. The Reuben we added to the menu because we're like, well, listen, we have sauerkraut. I guess we'll add cheese to the menu. It's not that hard. We didn't have cheese for the first 70 years we were in business. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can add cheese. Enough customers are asking for pastrami and Swiss or pastrami Swiss and sauerkraut. Okay, we can do that. Add a couple of years, you know, it's, it's like, listen, we already have the roast beef. We already have the cheese. All we need is peppers and onions. Well, we have onions. All right, fine. I guess we'll add a cheesesteak. It's something, it's a hard balance because you want to stay traditional and not change a single thing. But there's a tipping point, right? Enough customers ask me for the same thing, and I don't have a choice to do it. Like, for example, um, stuffed cabbage. We didn't have it on the menu for years. Um, Then one day we added it on. It went crazy for a year, and then we never sold another one ever again. For the next, like, seven years, we didn't sell a single freaking stuffed cabbage. I'm like, all right, well, I guess we're taking it back off the menu. Um, So I think it's different. You know, most restaurants in New York have to change on a seasonal basis at the very least, right? They they can't always have the same menu 24-7 for years and years and years. But we're in a lucky position where people want that tradition and they want the classics. Like you said, they come for the pastrami and the corned beef. Give them the pastrami and the corned beef. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so it, it, in many ways, it's very lucky to, to be able to be in that position. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more Jake Dell talking about Katz's Deli on the Lower East Side. Stick with us. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Uh, uh, uh. 
Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Jake Dell. He's the owner of Katz's Deli, located in Manhattan. We've been talking a lot about tradition in the first half of the show and sort of reconciling, keeping things just the way that they've always been for 129 years, but also being malleable in the sense of adding certain things to the menu and processes to make things slightly more modern. Uh, They still have a ticket system that they use at Katz's. Uh, which is just uh, you get a ticket at the door and then the cutter marks it off and at the end you pay for it. I want to talk about now going super modern, which is the first uh, outpost of Katz's. Maybe there will be more. We'll talk about that in a second. But tell me about how you decided to get involved in DeKalb Market. What is Katz's Brooklyn going to look like and how – different or similar will the experience be uh yeah so it, it is definitely challenging to go from something very traditional to doing something new um especially you know there's this weird uh dynamic where customers don't want me to change anything but they also want it everywhere you know what i mean and and so a lot of what i do is about maintaining the the experience and and making sure you have the classic experience but bringing it a little bit closer to you. So that's why we, we've expanded shipping all over the country to bring cats a little bit closer to you, to, to do catering, to bring it a little bit closer to your office. To, and now with Brooklyn, it's the exact same concept. It's uh, a small, small takeout only, 400 square feet uh, in the middle of a crazy busy food hall, just chaotic in the center of downtown Brooklyn, where there's a lot of people and a lot of my customers come from or, or live or work. Uh, and it's about bringing the food just a little bit closer to them. And, and if the only experience they've ever known is taking out from Katz's, not sitting in, but, but take out. And there are many, many customers like that. Then this is the exact same experience. Uh, it's, I'm losing touch with a lot of those customers, um, with a lot of the classic uh, Brooklyn or Queens or Long Island, uh, the, the crowd that drives in, parks outside, runs in, grabs a sandwich, and drives home and brings us home sandwich for, you know, wife and kids, you know, and unfortunately it's getting harder and harder to do that on the Lower East Side. Uh, just parking is difficult and everything's difficult in, <laughs> in the Lower East Side and it's crowded and it's busy, it's chaotic. So hopefully Brooklyn will allow that to happen. It'll allow that connection with the customers that have kept me in business for so long. You cannot forget about about your customer base and about your loyal fans. And you you know, you have to do something for them every once in a while, <laughs> every hundred and twenty nine years. I'm curious, are you gonna bring any cutters over? Are you gonna use a POS system? Like how yeah. different is it gonna be? You know, right. it's it's in a it's in a fancy food hall, let's be honest, exactly. which is in a big fancy mall. So how how are you going to try to keep that besides the flavors and besides, you know, the the menu, how are you gonna try to keep it? So the, the same? first thing is is the food, mm-hmm. as you just said. I mean that's the most important thing. Right. If the food's even a little bit off, I will hear about it. They will yell at me and they will castrate me. So yeah. there's no question. We're still going to make everything ourselves, cure everything, smoke everything in the store and just bring it over. Um, it's just easier. Um, how do we do beyond the food? Um, it's the look. It's the feel. Um, we're very 
I'm working with my, I, I hired an art director now. Pro, I'm promoted to someone from within who, who I'm working with very closely to make sure it, it maintains that feel. Yeah. Which is very challenging and sounds like a super fluffy answer, but I, I don't know how to articulate it, quite frankly. It's just something that I know is going to be right. Um, you know, I've lived and breathed cats as my entire life. So I'm going to make sure um, that it is Katz's. No disrespect to your parents and the folks that ran it before you, but it seems like you have a much more grand vision for Katz's than what may have existed 50 years ago. You're trying to take it in a in a larger, more expansive direction. I'm curious, do you have a specific growth strategy for the next 20 years for Katz's, or are you still going year by year as you're getting your feet underneath you with this massive operation. So uh, I don't think uh, I, I, I certainly I have a five year, a 10 year I even have a 50 year plan um, and I don't know that there's many people that are as uh, neurotic as I am on that front um, but I it, it's so flexible. I mean it's so mm-hmm. dependent on what happens and you could plan up the ass but but when push comes to shove I'm sorry am I allowed to curse? On that? Yeah okay. you can curse a ton don't worry about it we're on, we're on, <laughs> we're on the internet you can do whatever you, you want. You know how hard it was by the way as a New Yorker to like that was the first curse 32 minutes in that's impressive. We got time you can let loose for the rest of the show. I'll, I'll still be good. Um, uh, now I don't even remember what I was saying. Uh, oh right right so um I, you could plan, but at the end of the day, things happen on a on a weekly, daily, hourly basis. Um, you know, right now, I, I I just saw a text already. There's something, you know, something going wrong. That's just the nature of the business. Yeah. Um, and so, I I do have a plan. I wouldn't say it's a grand vision. And and I think, I think there's um, I'm a, afforded a lot of luxuries that my parents and my grandparents didn't have. Um, which is that more people know about Katz's now too. I mean, and the, the internet and, and shows like this and uh, Food Network and Travel Channel, hell, even Instagram. I mean, it, it allows for a wider reach. And now people are intrigued about this place that they weren't in the in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and, and, you know, so we're in a very different position today in 2017 than we were in 1987 you know it used to just be there was three movies that people saw that they knew about cats but now there's hundreds of different touch points all over the world and and on so many different channels that they can find you do you have a social media person do you do it yourself yeah well um so one of uh, one of the waitresses um i was looking at some of the pictures she was taking I was like, wow, you are really talented. You're really very good at this. Just start taking pictures and start posting them. And she started doing that. And we're up to, I don't know, 30 some odd thousand followers. It's great. It's like pure awesome. food porn. So you have someone that just was working there. That, yeah, that's, I have incredibly so... talented people around me. And mm-hmm. it's just a matter of finding them. My art director now was a waiter. My, you know, like the people that I surround myself with started in the business because they they're i know them you know what i mean and and they know me and they know the store and and so i like that i like that they're there and they're part of it 
And it's not like they're, you know, they're still, she's still a waitress there. <laughs> she's still a hostess. And she's, you know. She's just doing a little more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to ask you about something that was in the news I'm uh, a couple years ago now, I believe, which is the air rights. Uh, that sounds unbelievably confusing to me. <laughs> and... Uh, people that listen to this show that are that are in the biz that pay attention to business in general, this is not something that you see all the time. So, yeah. can you explain a little bit about what air rights is, and also how did that kind of come about that um, that you negotiated that deal, and and um, how right. difficult was that for you to navigate those waters? Um, so, uh, air rights are. This incredibly novel concept that really don't exist much outside of New York in the same way. Um, the idea is you're allowed to build up to a certain height. And it. Um, and in my case, I don't want to build higher. I, I'm happy being a one-story building. But the guy next to me who's going to build a big, a big building, the building was about to sell, he would very much like to build, put an extra four or five stories you know, so we're not talking skyscrapers here. We're talking going from a you know five six story building to a ten eleven story building. But for him, it's very valuable, and for me, I don't really care. So um, I can do this and essentially like building blocks. You know what I mean? Hey, listen, here are my imaginary four stories to put on top of your building. Don't touch my building. Stay away from my building. Don't build on top of me. Uh, let you know. So I, I also I. It was very important for me to do that, to be able to fund some of these other amazing projects. I put it all back in the business to protect Katz's for the future. You know, it protects it physically, the building. Financially, it protects it. Uh, And it just was a no-brainer. And it was, yeah, of course it was challenging. Um, I learned a lot uh, about the real estate business. you know, you do research, and I, you know, who do you look for su- for support on, in that realm? Though, I mean, obviously, you're you got 140 employees, you got thousands of customers coming through the door. Your day is busy, so like, who do you look to for advice in the realm of large business decisions? Are your are any other family members involved in in day to day decision making processes, or, or is it really you now? <laughs> it is. It's both. Um, it's me ultimately, uh, but I. I still talk to my father and my uncle and, mm-hmm. and I just get their thoughts and, and want to hear because they, they have years, decades of experience. Um, and you can't just throw that away. Uh, you can't just ignore that. So I like to, to hear what they have to say. And, and they often have a, you know, a lot to say. <laughs> it's a Jewish family. What do you want? Um, so yeah, get their opinions and, and ultimately you, I don't know. I just try and surround myself with smart people. So I try and hire a good attorney or a good real estate person and let them hopefully guide me correctly um, and do my own research, you know. You uh, wrote a letter to the New York Times about Carnegie Deli closing where you very eloquently pointed out that uh, even though they were, in essence, sort of a competitor of yours, that they are really still part of the Deli family and that – their disappearance was a negative uh, occurrence in the city of New York. Can you just expand, for those that haven't seen the letter, can you just expand a yeah, little bit on, on how you felt when Carnegie closed and why? what prompted you to write the it's letter? It's a travesty, honestly. Um, 
I think, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Um, Carnegie, for those that don't know, Carnegie Deli is very old, similar in style, uh, the classic big sandwiches, pastrami, corned beef, things like that. So in people's minds, uh, especially tourists' minds, it was a strong competition. But it's really not. It's like a big brother, little brother type of relationship because at the end of the day, you know, when people talk about Delhi, the more that they talk about Delhi, the better it is for everyone. There's more than enough business to go around. There's more enough, more than enough to share with people. Um, you know, and, and so it wasn't like, you, you know, they would call me up sometimes. Sandy would call up and when he still ran it, I would call up my father and my grandfather and say, hey, listen, you know, we're short on bread this week. We're short on, on some pickles. Can you spot us some friend? And then, you know, when the weekend's done, when I get our next delivery, we'll, we'll give back. Of course. Of course. There's that kind of, of camaraderie because we're all doing the same thing, the same tradition. And so, uh, you know, as a deli man, it's very sad to see. As a New Yorker, it's even worse to see. Um, well, I don't know if it's worse. It's it's equally bad because it's a it's a food tradition, a cultural tradition that is largely dying. And I don't want to be the only one. I don't. Um, so it's sad. It's very sad. I felt the need to write something and send it out to someone to let someone read it. And <laughs> otherwise, it's just me yelling to myself in the corner of a room. Before we went live, you were saying that, you know, you eat a lot of meat. You're tasting the meat. <laughs> you're looking at the product. Um, I want to know specifically what it how do you know when the meat is ready? Can you talk a little bit about, you said that basically what you said is you've seen sandwiches go by you in the dining room before and you know by looking at it that it's not right. Yes. So how do you know? And, uh, and what, is, what is the perfect meat sandwich then? How, what, what, when does it reach that level? So the first thing that you notice is the smell. Um, I guess let's start with the negative and then go to the positive. Then the negative, something's not right. It doesn't smell right. It doesn't look right. It doesn't, the fat doesn't jiggle quite right. You know, the, the, the way that it cuts is not quite right. And typically it starts at the kitchen. The guy in the kitchen knows when he takes it out of the pot, he, he goes, mm, not a hundred percent sure. And as it's going by, everyone's looking at it and going, oh, I'm not sure. And then it gets to the cutters and they take it out and they start to cut it. And they're like, oh, I'm not so sure. All of my staff is, we work with this every day, every hour, every minute. And so we know when something's wrong. It, it's the same way that you know, you know, if you have a, a kid and you know that you're like, oh, I, I, that kid's about to get a cold. Something's about to happen. Or that kid's about to poop their pants or, or something. You, you know what's about to happen. It's the same way. It's the exact same type of relationship because you're so there present with that meat um and and it's and you see it every day now as far as the perfect sandwich um it's the exact same thing but in reverse it's every single sense uh in your body you you smell it first well i guess you look at the sandwich first you see it coming off and you just your eyes get wide and and then that you get that whiff of a little bit of garlic and a, a little bit of onion and coriander and, and it all kind of hits your nose and goes towards the back of your sinus and you just sort of like stop for a second and you 
you, you take a taste of it and it hits the front of the taste buds and it's one flavor and it goes to the back of the taste buds and it's another flavor and then you swallow it and you kind of have this orgasmic moment and you're like, don't know what's up and what's down. And, um, and that is a perfect pastrami sandwich. You, you want it with, for me, just a little bit of mustard uh, on rye and that's it. I don't want anything else on it. I don't want Swiss. I don't want sauerkraut. I, I, I don't care. I, I mean, and you're welcome to do that. And, and I, I'll, sure, yeah, no problem. That's not what I want. Um, but I think everyone has their own special relationship with with pastrami too. So, um, yeah. Damn, I just got hungry thinking about that. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think that you made everyone really hungry. Uh, thank you for joining us today on the line. Everyone go and check out Cats as if for some crazy reason you've never been. I promise you, believe the hype. It's really, really good. 129 years in. Uh, Good luck on the Brooklyn location. We'll be keeping an eye on that and seeing how that goes. And uh, we hope to have you back soon on the program. Uh, Thanks for making us all starving. (laughs) Uh, Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m., here on the line for more stories from chefs and restaurateurs. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.